This is the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks on KQV with expert advice from CPA, attorney, and retirement and estate planning expert Jim Lang, best-selling author of Retire Secure and the Roth Revolution, Pay Taxes Once, Then Never Again. Now on air and worldwide, paytaxeslater.com. Now get ready to talk smart money. And welcome to the Lang Money Hour. I'm Dan Weinberg, along with CPA and attorney Jim Lang. Tonight, we welcome back to the program Charlie Smith, Executive Vice President and Chief Investment Officer of Fort Pitt Capital Group. Over the course of his 32-year career, Charlie has held leadership positions at several Pittsburgh regional investment firms, and he's been a frequent lecturer and commentator on the economy and the markets. You might have seen him on CNBC or perhaps read his work in the Wall Street Journal. Tonight, among other things, we'll talk about the big news that everybody's been talking about, the Brexit vote, the implications for U.S. investors, and what we can expect for the remainder of 2016 as a result. Plus, Charlie will talk about estimates of fair value for the U.S. stock market, what he thinks the Fed will do for the the rest of the year and his outlook for corporate earnings. And with that, let's get right to it. Let's get started on what should be a fascinating discussion by saying good evening to Jim Lang and Charlie Smith. Welcome, Charlie. Well, thank you, Jim. Great to be back. Well, before we get into the meat of today's show, I do feel honor bound to say that um, I am not independent with Charlie or his organization, Fort Pitt Capital Group. Usually when I have a, a guest on, um, whether it no matter almost who it is, um, usually they have a lot to offer, um, and I have and I try to get the best information to my listeners that I can. But frankly, I never or rarely have any ulterior motive in terms of my own personal gain. So, if somebody has written a book, let's say Jane Bryan Quinn just wrote a book, I will certainly mention her book. Or if somebody um, is going to be in town or whatever it might be, I, I will mention that. But usually, I, there is no um, gain or loss that I have, and usually my relationship with my guests are completely independent. That is not true with Charlie Smith and Fort Pitt Capital Group, and I feel honor-bound to disclose this. We do have a financial relationship whereby, um, in the event that I bring a potential client to Fort Pitt Capital Group, uh, we have an arrangement where our office does things that we call it running the numbers. We determine Roth IRA conversion amount, Social Security strategy, how much people can spend. Uh, we get into estate planning and tax planning, etc. But anyway, we do have a fee sharing ag- agreement. The, the good news for the client is that they are not paying me a fee and Charlie and Fort Pitt Capital Group a fee. They are paying one fee, which by the way is identical to what Fort Pitt would charge anybody else. And then uh, Fort Pitt Capital Group and I um, have a fee-sharing ar- arrangement. So if you like what you hear and you end up doing business with us, you, I should let you know that I am not independent with Charlie. So with anyway, with that introduction, um, right now what is on everybody's mind, and we've already seen some vacillation in the stock market, is the, is the Brexit vote. So um, if you could kind of take us through what has actually happened, what you think will happen, and why it is important for us as investors. I'm sure that our audience would be very interested, and very frankly, this is one of the areas that I think that you excel, which is, I think in your own words, um, getting a world view on events, interpreting them, and then trying to figure out 
what, if anything, you should do about it. Okay. Well, great. Yeah, I, I'd love to uh, sort of frame the, the Brexit issue. Um, last week, the, uh, the British people uh, voted approximately 51 to 49 to leave the Eurozone, uh, a political union which was established uh, over the last 20, 25 years, um, and to promote trade and, and uh, really remove the barriers to trade within the entire European community. Um, the British people um, have decided uh, through a referendum that they no longer want to be part of the uh, European Union. They voted that way. Um, and the way the numbers worked out, it was a 51 to 49 vote in favor of Brexit, which is British exiting uh, the EU. Uh, and it turns out that about 36% of the, um, the British vote-eligible population voted to leave. So, But the final vote was 51 to 49. Um, and so what happens next is, uh, and by the way, this vote had no binding authority. Um, the way that the, exit, the British exiting the EU happens is via uh, an official um, movement on the part of the prime minister to invoke what's called Article 50 of the EU treaty. Which, and basically Article 50 says that the Brits have two years to put in motion um, the divorce, so to speak. And so um, what happens now is that the British uh, leadership has to begin the process of the divorce. It turns out that Prime Minister Cameron, the uh, Tory party leader, uh, announced that he was resigning um, the day uh, that the results were announced. So there will be a new Tory uh, conservative prime minister who will be charged with implementing Article 50 should the, the, uh, the, the, the prime minister decide to go forward with it. So, um, so the, the, formally, the vote had no effect, but um, the, the British government will, over the next couple of years, invoke Article 50, presumably, and move forward with the divorce. All right. When you say it has no effect, um, but the, the new conservative um, prime minister will invoke it in the next two years, yes. is that because he is doing his job in respecting the vote? Absolutely. And so, so he, even though theoretically mm -hmm. he could say, well, I know that you know those hapless voters voted to do something that I don't think is in England's best interest, so therefore I'm going to ignore it. You're saying even if he feels that way, he, you think it is more than likely that he will invoke it and that there will be this economic separation. Exactly. Um, I think one of the sort of driving forces to this referendum, and it's interesting, you know, the old saying, careful what you wish for, the conservatives uh, the, had, had initiated this referendum sort of on the assumption that we're going to put this issue to bed. Uh, there's been all this talk, mostly due to immigration issues on the part of the British populace, that they wanted out of the EU. So the, the conservatives said, okay, we'll have a referendum on the idea that it would finally basically put the, that the British people would vote to stay in the EU and it would put the issue to bed. And it turned out to be, um, you know, and all the polls ahead of the event were saying that remain, remain is winning, it's winning, and then the Brexit happened. So the, the, I don't believe that the, uh, that the leadership in Britain today can go against the will of the voters because a big driver of this referendum was hey, we're tired of being ruled by the elites and not having our voices being heard. So if the leadership in Great Britain today said, hey, we're not going to listen to the voters, I think it would be sort of rubbing salt in the wound and, and really would be uh, a death knell for the conservative party in Britain if they were to ignore this 
Okay. All right. So so let's let's assume that you are right on that on this aspect, and that the plan going forward is sometime presumably in the next two years, the mm-hmm. new conservative prime minister um, invokes the act and um, starts. Uh, the let's call it economic divorce. Yeah, starts the clock. And by the way, there'll be a new election for a prime minister on September 9th. So that's coming up fairly quickly. Okay. So let's let's assume that this happens. Mm-hmm. What are the implications, I guess, for England, for Europe, and ultimately for U.S. and sure. U.S. investors? Sure. Well, the, most of the talk in terms of the market commentary since the vote was announced last week was um, – the uncertainty of the timeline, A, which we've just been talking about, and what the response of the EU leadership is going to be to the initiation of the divorce proceedings. And the concern has been that the EU leadership um, is going to want to punish the British people for making the move to leave the Union. And so how would they do that? They would make the terms of trade between Britain and the all the remaining members of the EU much more onerous. They would block uh, the ability of British companies to be able to trade with other companies that have remained within the EU. Um, the idea is that the EU leadership wants to prevent any other nations that are currently members of the EU from thinking about taking the same route that the British did because it would simply be too painful. So there's an incentive on the part of the remaining um, nations within the EU and the leadership of those nations to say to the rest of the community that have remained, look, um, we're going to make it really painful to, for you to do what the British have just done. So we're going we're gonna to limit the amount of trade. We're going to limit the ability of the, uh, the British banks to function. We're going to basically make it really, really difficult for the Brits to continue to trade in the way that they had as previously as members of the EU and all the potential issues that go with that. Is that a real possibility given that, at least it's my understanding, that um, Britain has a lot more imports from the rest of Europe than exports? So, you know, in a way, yes, the EU holds some cards, but... But the British have some real good cards, too. Yeah. Um, Yes, exactly. The uh, uh, Britain runs a trade deficit with the remainder of the EU. That is, they buy more from the remaining members of the EU than they sell. And it's a, a significant one also, is exactly. right? Exactly. Um, okay. So the, the, you know, and the, Nigel Farage, who's the, uh, the EU, um, the EU has its own parliament, and Farage is the, um, one of the representatives from Britain to the EU parliament, Farage came out and said yesterday, basically it's going to come down to are the, is the leadership of the EU going to try to uh, or be willing to cut off their nose to spite their face? Okay. Um, are they going to take an action which in the end will um, basically backfire on the economies of the wider EU by shutting out Great Britain? So, um, and we don't know the answer to that. Uh, we've, we've heard some comments um, from some members of the EU leadership over the last couple of days um, that have been sort of petulant. They've been sort of, uh, and you can expect this after a vote has an emotional, very emotional vote has gone against them. Uh, but there's been a certain amount of resentment that's come out. So we're we're that's what we're watching most closely as investors. We want to see what the response of the EU leadership is in terms of 
implementing, uh, once Article 50 is invoked, implementing restrictions on the terms of trade between Britain and the remainder of the EU. That's going to be a big driver and a big determiner of how much economic fallout comes from the, bre the Brexit vote. And we really don't know the answer to that. Uh, we think um, probably that cooler heads will prevail. We may see... Um, some of the uh, uh, London had become a big banking center. It had become basically the banking center for all of Europe. There is some concern that uh, the, the, we will have a new banking center, and a lot of the large multinational banks that are now headquartered in London are going to have to move their headquarters to Brussels or the Netherlands or um, some other place within the EU. Uh, that may happen. That'll be more of a cost issue for some of the banks and more of a, a logistical, technical issue. But in terms of the broader economics and shutting down trade, um, we think that probably cooler heads will, will prevail because the potential for a scorched earth uh, by wanting to punish the British uh, is just too much to think about. Okay. Well, as I understand, you have you have always basically been, within certain limits, mm -hmm. a, a free trader, if you will. Yes, yes. All right. Do you think that ultimately that this vote was against free trade or do you think it was against open immigration? I think much more the latter. I think the... Um, in fact, as I mentioned Nigel Farage yesterday, when in his remarks to the EU Parliament, he basically said, hey, we want to be your friends. We want to trade with you. It's just that the terms of the open borders agreements with regard to immigration were too much for the British people to take. Um, so it was much more about immigration and the problems that have come from you know more than half a million new immigrants into Britain in 2015, for example. Uh, and all the associated um, sort of social issues that went with that and the problems that were created, um, that was really the driver of the, 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 the Brexit vote. And so I think the British are going to try to impress upon the Europeans that, look, if we can work to solve some of these other issues regarding immigration, uh, there's no reason we can't continue to trade, um, you know, just as we have in the past. Now, there are some financial responsibilities um, that the you know the British was con the British were contributing significant amounts of money to the EU government, which goes away. So I, I think there is a certain amount of um, credence to the Europeans' argument that hey, you know you can't have the benefits of being in the EU in terms of open trade markets without the responsibilities that come from supporting the EU logistically and, and providing money. Um, to help with with making the EU EU run, so to speak. So, um, in the end, I think we'll end up with with cooler heads prevailing here. But I think they're going to have to make progress on the immigration issues for the British to uh, to want to continue to negotiate uh, trade agreements. And on from the European side, um, I think the uh, there is a certain amount of sentiment that they want to punish the Brits. Okay, you you had mentioned uncertainty, and you you categorize that as the feeling that so many people have mm -hmm. and you've always seemed to me to be one of the cooler heads mm -hmm. if you will so would you say that of, of course there is uncertainty but do you think that it is more predictable of what might happen and what the implications are and what we should do about it or do you really think that it's really in flux um, and, I, th I and think it's just too tough to, to even have any reasonable guesses. I think there is a certain amount of unpredictability to it, but I think the consequences, um, excluding the absolute scorched earth that I just talked about, where the EU basically says, hey, we're shutting out Britain completely. And I think there are enough uh, sellers of goods in places like Germany and France and Portugal and Spain and Italy 
sellers of goods to Britain that are going to say, hey, we don't want to shut out the British. So that outcome, I think the scorched earth, you know, uh, outcome where, where the Brits are completely shut out has a very low probability. Um, so from our perspective, the, the hugely negative outcome is almost off the table. It's just a matter of how we're ne- going to negotiate these new terms of trade, and it's going to be along negotiations. So I think there is a certain amount of uncertainty about those negotiations, but as long as that sort of hugely negative outcome is is blocked off the table immediately or fairly soon in these negotiations, I think the markets will be able to right themselves and, and function pretty readily. Um, so it's going to be what we're going to be watching the next few months is how aggressive the commentary is from the the leadership of the remaining members of the EU about how, just how severely they want to punish the British, and that's going to cause that's going to roil the markets. Um, you know, when when the the uh, EU leadership is saying that hey, w- we have to we have to make an example of the Brits, the pound's going to decline. Um, and and the dollar will rally. And I think that's the the dynamic that we need to pay the most attention to. But I think in the end that the most negative outcome where the Brits are completely shut out is off the table because they even the EU leadership recognizes that that would be bad for everybody. Will the differences in immigration and maybe it's not financial, although I suspect it's related, um, the security issues, mm-hmm. You know, which I understand is a major portion of the EU, and now this is not going to be um, at least the status quo. Mm-hmm. Is this something that gives you pause? Um, less, well, obviously, an event like what we saw recently at the uh, the Istanbul airport with in terms of a terrorist attack. Those are always um, issues that the market will will try to deal with on a, on you know day to day. It seems basis these days, but. Um, I think this is actually the, the the British voting to to leave on security and immigration issues basically says to me that there's a willingness uh, that maybe the EU hadn't demonstrated in the past to start trying to solve or put up some some potential pushback against some of these these terrorist issues and some of the uh, the issues of um, of ISIS infiltrating. You know various segments of the the uh, the continent. So um, I think the British basically saying, "Hey, enough!" with regard to open borders is actually a good sign in terms of potential um, dampening these terrorist events. And I think the market probably would look at it that way as well. All right. Well, you sound you sound more positive than perhaps I might have expected. Um, yeah, I suppose I do. Um, I think the the bureaucratic functions of the EU. Um, and some of the, um, the the sort of side effects of the eurozone have become a negative for the broader European community. I think initially the opening the borders and opening trade and really getting rid of all the restrictions that come from trading between nations and making an, a, a very large and broad trading block were a wonderful thing. But I think so, that some of the baggage which has been attached to the EU over the past five, six, eight years, particularly with regard to the immigration issues, have have made it uh, a negative for, and it's pretty obvious, the Brits. And there are many others within the EU, the Italians, for example, where the uh, the skepticism about the Eurozone has risen. So I think this is a wake-up call, and it basically says to the EU leadership, hey, there's some aspects of this whole um, proposition which aren't working. So, Charlie, you guys just gave at least me the best explanation of what is going on with Brexit that I have heard. 
Um, what I would like to ask you, though, is you said, okay, you're going to be watching some things and specifically EU's reaction and mm -hmm. what they're going to be saying and doing to, to Britain very closely. Can I ask what U.S. investors should be thinking about and should they be buying, should they be selling, should they be making travel plans to Britain while it's cheap? Um, <laughs> should they go play golf in Scotland? What should, what, 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 should, what should U.S. investors be doing? Well, I'm certain Donald Trump would recommend that they go play <laughs> at, uh, I guess it's Turnberry. I'm not sure if that's his course, but uh, yeah. Um, well, first of all, um, from the perspective of U.S. investors, um, we're, we're not thinking that this, this uh, Brexit vote is a, an earth-shattering event by any stretch. Um, you know, the, the percentage of U.S. GDP that's represented tr with trade with Britain, you know, some de minimis percentage of trade, 2% two, two less than that. So uh, we don't think that the, the Brits determining that they are going to exit uh, is a material change for the U.S. economy in the short to intermediate term or even the long term. What the vote does is send a message uh, as we were speaking before, to the, the globalists around the world, that there are some hitches in the process. Uh, globalization is, I believe, an unstoppable trend. It's a juggernaut. Uh, we've, got, we've brought a couple billion people into the free markets over the last 20 years, and that has brought prosperity to, as I say, a couple billion people. Um, that, that's a wonderful wonderfully positive process. It does have some negative effects on the middle classes. You know, the uh, the manufacturing workers in the countries where costs are higher and production has been moved to the lower cost countries, those workers are hurting. And so that's a fallout from globalization that the our leadership needs to deal with, and they will, and they should. Uh, but as, in terms of the, the broader globalization process, I think it will continue. It may slow down a little bit, as a result of this, but we don't think this is a, uh, a cataclysmic event for worldwide markets. Um, it is; uh, it may potentially be slightly inflationary as we um, sort of limit some of the terms of trade uh, in the short run. But um, I think the benefits of globalization are pretty obvious to most people around the world. And so the, the, uh, we don't think this is event is going to reverse that by any stretch. It may slow it a little bit, but it's not going to reverse it. So from the perspective of the markets, we don't believe this is a, a game changer. Are you changing your asset allocation recommendations at all, or even yeah. saying, okay, maybe this is even an opportunity to have a greater percentage of European exposure? Not yet. We are, again, we're watching to see what the commentary from the EU leadership is all about over the next five, six months. Um, so if we do get a sense that the, uh, that the EU is going to, you know, for lack of a better term, cut off their nose to spite their face, um, we would have less uh, inclination to invest in Europe over the very longer term. In the short run, that sort of news would probably create some trading opportunities, the opportunity to buy some companies where uh, their stocks get beat up because the assumption is that the, the trade restrictions are going up. But it would, on balance, reduce our willing to, willingness to invest in Europe for the longer term if it appears as if the Eurozone is determined to punish the British. Well, Charlie, I always think of you as um, one of the great bargain shoppers, if you will. Absolutely. And you are, um, and uh, you seem to do very well at, let's say, picking 
either distressed or perhaps it might be more accurate to say out of favor mm -hmm. companies. And that brings up um, something that a, a classic, which I consider you a classic, uh, let's call it value oriented, not that you don't have growth in your portfolios, but perhaps a little bit more value than, than other investors or portfolio managers. Um, that brings up the issue of fair value. Right. And could you talk a little bit about what fair value is and what the implications are for voters, both in terms of Brexit and even just um, not Brexit, just sure. in, in general, because that's such a, an important area. Well, there we believe there is an objective, mathematically determinable uh, fair value for a, a business. And sort of by um, derivation, therefore, there should be a mathematically determinable fair value for an entire marketplace. Um, and so we try to take what we see as consensus earnings estimates for, um, say, the S&P 500, which is the best proxy for the U.S. equity market, we believe. Um, large companies, obviously. It doesn't include a whole lot of smaller companies that make up a decent pro proportion of the U.S. equity market. But for, for our purposes of this argument, the, the S&P 500 is a decent proxy for the U.S. stock market. If we can come up with what we believe is a reasonable estimate for profits for that set of companies, and we know what the interest rate is, uh, long-term interest rate or the discount rate on those profits, um, we should be able to come up with what we deem to be a reasonable value for those businesses. And so uh, we do that continuously for the S&P 500. And consensus estimates for the S&P for earnings for calendar 2016 are about 118 to $119 per S&P 500 share in aggregate. So you have $118 in earnings for the S&P 500 in aggregate for calendar 2016. Uh, given where interest rates are and inflation rates, um, the P.E. multiple or the, the, uh, the, the, the multiple of, of those earnings that you're willing to pay in the share price um, should be somewhere in the 17 to 18 range. So you take that, that $118 number, multiply by 17, it gets you fair value for the S&P of about just over 2000, 2006. Uh, we actually hit that in the days right after the Brexit vote. Uh, the stock market declined from north of uh, the S&P 500 declined from north of 2100 down to just under 2000. So we think the Brexit vote actually drove U.S. share prices right back to fair value. They were mo they were moderately or in small way overvalued pre the the Brexit vote. Um, but so we see fair value for the S&P 500 on 2016 earnings right around 2000. Now, remember, the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism. It's going to try to discount the future and, and, and put the future into today's prices. So the market is just now beginning to look at whatever 2017 earnings might look like. And earnings growth has been basically negative now for the S&P 500 for five quarters success, successively. So uh, what we're doing is saying, okay, um, it looks like the, uh, the rate of earnings growth for the S&P 500 has flattened out. It's been negative for five quarters, but actually the, the estimates have actually been improving for 2017. So we're making a best guess for 2017 earnings for the S&P 500 somewhere in the 122, 123 range. Uh, you know, maybe 2 3% type increase, not a boxcar increase by any stretch. Um, and we put the same 17 multiple on that number. Um, you know, we get a fair value for the S&P not too far north of where we are, maybe 2100, 2150 today. So um, 
two to three percent earnings growth is not going to get you uh, real nice returns from the average stock. Historically, earnings have grown at about six percent per year. So the the very conservative earnings estimate we're using initially for 2017 uh, of two to three percent growth um, is not going to get you you know even the average long term rate of return for the typical U.S. stock, which is about nine percent. We're looking at something well underneath that. So we're we're uh, we're not all that aggressively positioned uh, in our portfolios because stocks are right at fair value, and we're not looking for all that great growth for next year for profits. Is there an argument that um, since some of the price-earnings ratios of, let's say, some of the um, companies or countries in the Asian rim mm-hmm. um, that have a lower price-earnings ratio, is there an argument that that potentially represents a buying opportunity if we're going to use this fair value mm-hmm. as one of the barometers of what to pay for a stock, or do we have some of the uncertainties of third-world accounting and those types of problems that might offset a more favorable price-earnings ratio. You nailed it exactly, Jim. Um, you know, the, when when you invest outside the U.S., you've got some uh, some ingredients in the mix which create additional risk. Whether it be accounting standards aren't necessarily what they are here. You've got currency issues. You've got greater political risks because the rule of law isn't necessarily the way it's defined here in the U.S. So um, that's going to drive down the multiples in that you typically see overseas. Um, With regard to the emerging markets, which have had a really tough road the last three or four years, they are now um, in aggregate selling at valuations which are discounted to the U.S. valuation. So, um, and as that that uh, discounting uh, mechanism continues to operate, and you know the risks overseas are are perceived as greater and greater, that's when we're going to get interested in looking more closely at those businesses. So, what I'm saying is, we need to see an even bigger discount. Um, given the trends that we've seen, you know, in the last couple of years with regard to the big declines in commodity prices, because so much of the emerging market profits are driven by commodities, um, so there are probably four or five ingredients that would argue for a bigger discount and lower PE ratios in the overseas marketplace, particularly the developing marketplace, than even that we see now. So we're cautious with regard to the overseas markets, but uh, they're certainly a lot cheaper than they were three or four years ago. And so they're getting, they're coming on our, the edges of our radar screen, I guess is the best way to put it. Okay. Um, you have brought up that, that you think that globalization is almost an inevitable result and that you seem to think that that's what rational leaders are thinking about. Mm-hmm. Yes. And without at the risk of getting political, it seems that the presumptive nominees of both parties are not necessarily 100% free traders. Mm-hmm. Um, we've heard pronouncements on both sides right. um, t- questioning NAFTA, the Pacific Trade um, Agreements, um, you know, Donald Trump saying steel is coming back, mm-hmm. that isn't exactly consistent and so is this a problem with both parties? Is this a problem with us? Do you think that these leaders don't really mean what they're saying? I, I think they mean what they're saying. I think the, uh, as we mentioned earlier, there, the, there are side effects for particularly the middle classes of many of the developed world's populations that come from globalization that are negative. Uh, you know, 
there is a, a significant segment of the British population that said they didn't even believe that the economic aspects, let alone the immigration aspects of the EU, were any good. Um, there's a large percentage of, uh, of unemployed manufacturing workers here in the U.S. who would say that globalization was a negative, was a bad thing for, for much of the middle and working class. Um, and I think the the policymakers, to a certain extent, have have failed in that they haven't addressed those side effects in in the proper way. And that has what has arisen from that that failure is, you know, the Donald Trump phenomenon, the the unwillingness of Hillary Clinton to be as positive about free trade as she had been previously. Um, I think they were simply responding to the voices that are out there that are saying, hey, the middle class. Um, is to a certain extent suffering from some of the aspects of free trade. So, um, you know, we, we've we've uh, ended up with two candidates who are reflecting the frustrations and the anger that that is out there. That said, um, there's still a very large, particularly young population um, that I think recognizes that shutting yourself off from the rest of the world. Um, is is not only economic but socially a negative. Um, and I think, you know, to a certain extent, some of us have forgotten what happened in the 1930s when we did institute Smoot-Hawley and we did shut down international trade and the potential problems that come from that. I think there's still a large segment of the U.S. populace that goes to Walmart every week and recognizes that, hey, the goods that they can get so cheaply uh, are a direct function of the manufacturing of those goods in places where the labor costs are lower, costs are lower in general, uh, and we benefit in aggregate from that, even though there are some industries that have suffered, like steel, that have suffered dramatically from so, it. So right before we break, is it fair to say that if you were giving advice to either candidate or either party or even uh, Congress, mm-hmm. that in general you would be encouraging free trade but trying to do a better job of protecting some of the people who are hurt by it. You, you need to basically say, okay, who are the folks that are suffering the most? And, and sort of grade it on a scale and say, okay, are there industries that have been just completely devastated? What can we do in terms of creating, say, some sort of safety net for those folks? Um, but you can't basically go out with a blanket statement that say, hey, we're going to protect everybody. You have to sort of make a judgment, which is what politicians are really in our leadership, and leadership anywhere is charged with doing, make a judgment about who is hurting the most from this process, which in broader terms is benefiting billions of people. But make a judgment that those people are hurting the most. Let's see what we can do to fix them or help them. Charlie, in this last segment, I'd like to address some new rules um, that I think are very important that concern uh, the fiduciary standard. But before we get into what the rules are, can we just be step back for a minute and could you explain to the audience what a fiduciary is? Yes. A fiduciary um, is someone who has entirely your interest as the client as their top priority. That's essentially the practical definition of it. Um, in terms of the, dif- the, the dictionary definition of it, it's someone who is responsible and morally responsible for funds, um, someone who is in charge of, of being sure that, that um, assets or resources are managed properly. Uh, but in terms of the practical definition in the investing world, 
A fiduciary is someone who is looking out for you and you as the number one priority. And so the fiduciary rule is one which applies to registered investment advisors. Um, it does not apply to individuals who hold themselves out as brokers. That is, the uh, a, a financial broker who sells investment products might have the interest of the, the provider of that product ahead of your interest as a customer. And um, as long as they disclose that to you, they're not necessarily required to operate under the fiduciary standard. So that's where the, the, the fiduciary standard comes from. All right, so let, let me just make sure that our listeners understand this. If you are a registered investment advisor, which certainly you are and I am, both you and I have a not only a moral but a legal obligation to recommend what we believe is in our client's best interest. Exactly. On the other hand, a stockbroker or perhaps an insurance salesman doesn't necessarily have have that subject to the new rule that we'll get to. So let's say for discussion's sake that I am a stockbroker or an insurance guy and you come to me and you say, um, gee, I'm interested in a safe investment. And I say to you, well, oh, by the way, I have this wonderful annuity. Um, it's going to cost you $100,000. And I don't bother disclosing to you that I and my company are going to get a $10,000 commission. And if you think about it, now the investment, so to speak, is actually $90,000, not $100,000. That's okay because I am not a fiduciary and I'm not a registered investment advisor. I'm just a stockbroker or an insurance person. But a registered investment advisor could not give that advice unless he he or she honestly believed that that annuity was for the best good of the client. Yes. And that's probably why, at least to my knowledge, neither neither one of our firms have, have ever sold one. Um, I, I sometimes lovingly call that going to the dark side. Well, but, sure. um, all right, so, so the fiduciary standard is looking out for the best um, interest mm -hmm. of the client. Right. Putting the client first in all phases of your, your investment advice. Okay, well that's what you have been doing and that's what I have been doing and that's what many um, other investment professionals have not been doing. Mm -hmm. So what is new? Well, the Labor Department has, has come out with a new set of rules um, labeled the fiduciary standard specifically for uh, investments that are rolled out of 401k plans. Um, or 403Bs or other um, um, long-term investment plans. And this standard basically says that um, if you are rolling an investment into an IRA, an individual retirement account from your 403B or 401K, that the advice which is given to people with those accounts must be held to the fiduciary standard. Um, so this has roiled the, all the providers of insurance products and investment products, and, um, annuities, index funds. The entire investing universe is trying to deal with this new regulation from the Department of Labor. And interestingly, um, there are some segments of the, the brokerage industry which have sued to reverse um, this, this, this law. Um, there was a, an effort on the, in the halls of Congress to... Um, to repeal the new regulations, and uh, the, uh, the the Obama administration uh, vetoed the the legislation, which was 
actually passed to repeal this. So um, there has been a concerted fight against this legislation. Uh, actually, it's not legislation. It's rulemaking by the Department of Labor. All right. Now, since you and I are fiduciary advisors, mm-hmm. um, at least in our office, this has not had an impact on the way we do business. Has this had any impact on the way you do business? No, we've not changed our approach to the world that we operate in one bit. Um, we are still out there searching the waterfront, so to speak, for the best companies, the best businesses at reasonable prices that we can, um, and investment products, whether they be an ETF, a uh, uh, an index fund, whatever the product might be, uh, we are vetting it and saying, okay, are there other alternatives? Um, we're not being paid to offer this. Um, we're, we're not being compensated in any way to offer this um, even though it might have characteristics that don't benefit the client. We just don't do that. Um, we're looking for the best the best uh, investment out there at the best price to serve our client's interest. Well, I'm thinking about some of the, let's say, existing insurance guys mm-hmm. and people who have sold annuities. Um, I would imagine that, I guess theoretically, if they actually believed in their product mm-hmm. and they actually believed that the annuity was the best thing for the client despite the fees, et cetera, mm-hmm. then it would be legal or appropriate for them to offer that. Well, and if you can document, um, and that's one of the big issues with the new regulation, is um, as long as the, uh, the the broker can document um, that, that the, the product that they're offering has ABC benefits um, and maybe costs less than an, an alternative, um, you're going to be able to still operate as a broker. Um, and it, it's not just annuities that have issues attached to them. There, there are all sorts of uh, um, high, generally higher fee financial products out there mm-hmm. um, that have come under question as a result of the new uh, DOL rules. So um, our, from our perspective, the, the entire investment universe should be subject to the fiduciary standards. It shouldn't just be IRA accounts or 401K accounts. Uh, the entire investment spectrum should be subject to the standard. Well, that was actually the next issue I wanted to cover. So the new ruling does not apply to non-IRA, non-401K, 403B, SEP, KEO, et cetera. So let's say for discussion's sake that um, I am 66 years old, um, to use a nice round number, I have a million dollars in my 401K plan, I have $100,000 in savings. And let's say that I go to, um, now, if if I go to a fiduciary advisor, they are already going to be looking out for my best interest with or without the new law. Correct. But let's say for discussion's sake, I go to a stockbroker or an insurance guy that is not under a fiduciary duty. Mm -hmm. Is the law then that he must use the fiduciary duty on my million-dollar 401K, but he does not have a fiduciary duty with regards to my $100,000 outside the 401k. That's correct. That's, that's exactly right. So okay. We, we don't have a, the fiduciary standard does not cover the waterfront in terms of investment accounts. All right, which is what you would obviously like it to do. Uh, it would simplify things for the, the entire universe of investors, yes. Do you think that this will actually have an impact on the ability for stockbrokers or other non-fiduciary advisors to survive? Yes. Or, 
Absolutely, it already has. If you look at, you know, and the best uh, indicator is, is is the share prices of some of the uh, brokerage firms and the insurance, some of the insurance providers. They've seen their share prices um, in the last six months as this this regulation began to make its way to finality. Um, the share prices of some of these providers of these brokerage oriented products have suffered mightily. Yeah, I I can't help but think having a fiduciary standard for some of our political leaders might be a, a groundbreaking, wonderful thing for our country. Probably wishful and, and thinking, the world, too. Probably but. extremely wishful thinking um, on either side of the aisle. Um, well, well, that brings us to perhaps one of the most important things. Um, most most of, of my clients, and I think most of our, our mutual clients, um, tend to be IRA or 401k plan heavy. Yes. That is, we have a lot of clients who um, might have started their careers at a relatively young age, back in the day when you would go to work for a company and stay there for 30 or 40 years, or with the university, and they had car payments and mortgage payments, and they paid for their kids' braces, and they paid for their kids' college, and it was always hard for them to save money, Um, but they were prudent, and they put money in their 401k or if they were a university of 401a or a 403b and they kept doing that for 30 or 40 years and now the, they have a lot of money in their mm-hmm. retirement plans which is probably a relatively good formula for accumulating wealth and being able to retire um, with dignity in a manner that in which you like can you give some advice to some of our 401k and 403b investors Maybe not necessarily at the towards the end of their career, which is what we tend to do the most. Um, and obviously, we, what we are saying is, um, well, we didn't get into it, but a well diversified portfolio that is appropriate for the four hundred one k or four hundred three b. But what about the people in the accumulation stages, even at the later portions of the accumulation mm-hmm. stages? What advice would you have for our listeners who are, in effect, still working? And contributing to their sure. retirement plan, so many of the investment providers out there want to make this complicated. And as with much in investing, it can be simplified. Um, you can some simplify things too much sometimes. But in, in terms of the four hundred one k, there are probably three things, as a, particularly as a young person, you need to do to be successful. And if you do these things, you will be successful in investing. There is no doubt. There's not a question on this. Number one is max out your contributions, particularly if you have any sort of a matching feature to your, your plan. Uh, it's one of the last remaining true tax deductions out there. Um, so you want to make sure you put away the maximum. And if you're getting a match, you know, that's 100% return if it's a dollar-for-dollar dollar match. And you can't beat that anywhere else in the investing world. So make sure you max out. Number two is invest in ownership, invest in equities. Uh, over time, the way our society is structured, and I've, you've heard this a million times, Jim. I'm going to tell you one more time. <laughs> The way our society is structured, the people that take the risk of owning a business, and in this case a portfolio of businesses, are the ones who generate the greatest return for themselves. The returns from owning a portfolio of stocks, of equities, don't happen in a nice, neat, straight line the way, the way they do with a bond or a CD. But literally, the way our society is built, the people that take the risk of going into business earn a greater return. So you want to own stocks. Number three, don't ever touch it. Don't do anything with it. Don't borrow against it. Don't take money out and suffer a penalty. Don't ever touch it. Put it into stocks. Keep adding to your stocks. And then 
ignore it. Don't touch. Don't touch it. Look at it maybe once a year and a half, every two years maybe. Those three ingredients, if you can stick to that plan, will make you a successful long-term investor. And this would be regardless of your risk tolerance, particularly for a younger investor. Uh, well, it, this is particularly applicable to younger people because they've got the time horizon and they've got the power of compounding in their favor so that if there is a 30% decline in the value of the portfolio, the, your withdrawal period is 25, 30, 35 years out. And when you look back 30 years from now, that 30% decline is going to be a blip. You're not even going to see it. Okay, young, young, young earners, you have heard it. Max out your retirement plan. Always take advantage of the max. We didn't talk about Roth portions, but you might consider um, a Roth portion in your 401k. Invest in ownership, that is owning companies, not borrowing or lending money to companies, and don't look at your statements very often. All right, thanks so much to Jim and Fort Pitt Capital's Charlie Smith for a terrific hour. All of the Lang Money Hour episodes are archived soon after they air on the Lang Financial Group's website, paytaxeslater.com, under Radio Show. Thanks for listening to the Lang Money Hour, where smart money talks. Check out the show archives and listen on demand anytime at paytaxeslater.com.